All right, let's turn to the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 13, and uh, let's actually prepare our hearts with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your majesty that we sang about at the beginning of the service and the need to tell the world about how great you are. We thank you for the privilege to be able to serve you and to just share love with our community even last night as a way to let them know that we we care for them and we want to enjoy good things with them, Uh, help them to see that we, we want to enjoy the greatest of all things, which is a relationship with their creator. We want all the world to know that they are loved by a creator God who sent his only begotten son to die for them. And so, Father, I pray that as we, we demonstrate love for folks, that we would be the kinds of people that we ought to be. We know that in this world there is opposition to you and your truth. There is an adversary, and the one that is called the devil, and he actively tries to thwart the good that we attempt to do. And we know that he is a defeated foe, but we also know that we have to be vigilant, that we have to be aware, we need to be self-aware, that we are not being used of him to destroy the good that he intends to do in this world. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we look into this word, that we'd be taught, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have ears to hear, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from the text this morning. Um, If you're there, page number uh, 925, or Matthew 13, uh, picking up at verse 24, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, Then do what do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus gave his disciples three spitfire parables, one right after the other. But in these parables, there is uh, truth that's hidden in plain sight. 
How many times have you not been able to see what's right in front of you? I mean, you might have gone to the fridge and uh, maybe it's your workbench that you meticulously tidy every day, right? Or your closet that's so well ordered and it just, you can't find it. How about a solid gold statue hidden in plain sight? For over 600 years, there was a nine-foot-tall Buddha statue that was covered with stucco, and it sat in Bangkok, Thailand. It was also known as Phra Phutra Mahasuan Patimakan. You know what that means, of course, right? I had to say it. I I looked it up. I thought, I got to say that. But this Buddha statue was so heavy that it sat outside for years with a simple tin roof over top of it. Then in 1955, the statue was accidentally dropped while being moved to a new location, and pieces of the stucco fell off. And they were shocked as they understood what they had in front of them as being a nine-foot solid gold Buddha right in front of them. It was estimated worth of $250 million. And being covered with stucco, it was designed to be a a hiding place. There was Burmese invaders coming in, and they quick plastered it with the hopes that it wouldn't be taken away. And that ploy worked so well for nearly 600 years, it was hidden in plain sight. I want to tell you about something else that's hidden in plain sight. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, day after day, night after night, God is continually communicating his goodness, his truth, his beauty, through near infinite detail in the world in which we live. Think about, do you know what this is? Think how beautiful that looks. That is the eyelid of a bumblebee with dandelion pollen on it underneath a microscope, zoomed in probably hundreds of times. There is so much glory in the world that's all around us. A friend of mine, Rob Boss, has said that we are swimming in an ocean of God-planted signs, symbols, and emblems. Another friend of mine, Jonathan Edwards, has said that all the universe is full of the language of God, which really cannot be learned except having an understanding of the biblical story in which we live, the biblical narrative. We look at these pages, it may escape us that Genesis tells the beginning of the story and Revelation tells the end of the story, and we're living in that story. And it's all around us, and there's truth that's hidden all about us in plain sight. Now, Jesus drops three parables without any meaningful explanation, and he expected the Jews who had read the Torah all of their growing up years to have understood some of the nuance of the story. 
The biblical narrative should have been understandable to understand the kingdom, the rule of God from heaven. And knowing the biblical story is, I think, foundational. It's really important for us all to take in hand. Uh, It's really the seeds of where faith develop. And I want to just take a moment as an aside here to encourage families uh, that one of the best ways that you can encourage your family to know the biblical storyline is to be regular in your participation in Sunday school. Uh, This fall, starting September 10th, uh, we, we take the children three times, K to 12, three times through the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And if you didn't know that, that's something that's available to you so that your children may understand the biblical narrative to make sense of what God is doing in this world. I also would like to encourage parents. Uh, Perhaps you have put your faith and trust in the Lord and you've been participating in the life of this church for a while. Consider the possibility of being a part of the rotation in Sunday school. It is incredibly important for uh, our church family and involving ourselves in the life of our children and other children that are not immediately in our nest. Uh, We want to encourage all families. So this morning, after that aside, we're looking here at this one, we're only going to look at one of these parables. We're only going to look at the first parable this morning, uh, verse 24 to 30, and we're also going to see how Jesus interprets this parable. I didn't read those verses, they're in 36 through 43. Thankfully, Jesus explains this parable of the weeds so that we can understand how it connects to the biblical storyline. Now, there's an element of this text I'm not going to develop this morning. I want to say that right up front. I'm going to have to save it to a following week because it's just too big. He's going to talk about the field, and there's meaning that's attached to the field that I just can't develop logically this this week, but they're connected to the, the other two to the mustard seed and also to the, um, to the leaven or the yeast that was put into the, the flour. And so we'll talk about that next Sunday. Uh, but we're going to think through four key features. Truth that's hidden in plain sight. And consider how they connect to the sweeping biblical narrative in this text that we see. So verse 24, um, we're going to hear the parable of the We're going to hear the parable of the field and the good seed that is planted in the field. Verse 24, we read about two sowers that are described as active in this world. And they are designed to teach us that there is spiritual conflict all around us. And we ought to be aware of this conflict. So let's consider each of these two sowers, and understand what meaning Jesus intends for us to glean from that. So let's look at verse 34. And all these things uh, Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And then let's drop down to verse 36. Verse 36, he says, and then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, 
The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, the first sower, the first person giving seed is described, Jesus says, as the son of man. Now, who is this referencing? Well, we want to understand how Jesus uses these terms. A son in the Jewish context referred to quite normally in our own context as an offspring. An offspring usually bears traits of the parent. Uh, It was a very familiar concept in Jewish culture. And in a similar way, I understand that all my boys, for good or bad, can trace their origins back to me and Abby. They all have different kinds of traits. Uh, They're what you'd call, they're my image bearers. In, In each of their lives, there's elements that project something that they have received from me and also from Abby. And so the son tells us that a boy bears the image after at least their father. And our first father was who? Our first father historically was Adam. He was fashioned in the image of God. His father put into him and into his DNA characteristics that were reflective of him and his identity. Now, Adam was the first son, and he was designed to be blameless. He was, he was designed to do God proud. Just as I like to see my children do well, I receive joy in seeing them do well in the world. In the same way, God had designed for Adam to be an offspring to project his own image in the world. And unfortunately, we, we saw Adam, the first son, fall into sin with his wife Eve. And that image was marred through time. Now, in the biblical storyline, in the narrative, there is this underlying current of desire for a true son to come and represent God the Father perfectly. And the looking forward to that son coming found its identity in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the true son that none of us could ever have been. He was without sin, and he was fully able to to represent and make his father proud. In fact, when he was publicly baptized at the age of 30 years of age, he was baptized, and when he came up out of the water, a voice from heaven said, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And this is a signal that this is the son of man. This is the one that represents all the hopes and aspirations. It's found in the perfect man. And Jesus, speaking third person here, is very modest in his expression. It obviously refers to him. Uh, The seeds that this son of man, that Jesus was sowing, produced sons of 
his heavenly Father who rules from heaven in his kingdom. And they're patterned after Jesus, who is the true Son. Now, I I dwell on this just to encourage us, because what this means is that if we are born again by the Holy Spirit, we've been given a new identity with the promise that we will gradually be changed over time into the image of God's beloved Son. So I think it's important for us as believers that we would not despair the discipline of the Lord. There are times when God deals with us as sons and gets us back into line because he has good intentions for us. And all of the trials that we experience in life are designed to bring us to a place where we will give God greater glory than we could have without the trials that we have experienced. It's encouraging, I believe, because God intends good for us as his sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. And so there's a second sower that's in this parable, and he's described as an enemy, an enemy. Now, in verse 39, we read that he is specifically called the devil, the devil. Verse 39, uh, and Jesus says, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. This seems to indicate that God has has had a special enemy throughout time. And God's good work throughout all of history has been opposed. In other words, this enemy has a kingdom and he's at work too. The devil has been called many things. He's been called Satan, He's been called Lucifer. He has been called Beelzebub. And throughout the history of the world, from the very, very beginning, Satan has been disturbing God's kingdom, even in the garden that he created created perfectly good. Satan sowed seeds and corrupted Adam and Eve by causing them to question the goodness of God. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God, and there was so much evidence of the goodness of God all around them. They, they had a perfect garden that they didn't have to till and pull weeds in. And yet Satan caused them to question, and caused them to question God by saying, if God is good, then why does he limit your freedom? Why does he not allow you to eat from that tree? the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This question reminds me of the question about freedom and freedom in our own household. We, last week, lost a chicken to a predator. We've, we've been free-ranging our chickens, but they do have a coop, they do have a run, and we've had to put some limits upon them they're going to have to stay in their pen for a while, at least so we can make sure that the, the fox isn't nearby. Now, those chickens, they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. They're so used to just crowding up at that coop door so that when they open the coop door, they're all falling all over themselves to get out. But by limiting them, they are actually truly free because they're alive. You see, spiritual conflict is real. 
Satan wants to imagine, wants you to imagine that you will enjoy life more if you follow your gut. Or why live with self-limits? Well, God knows that we can't live without some sort of self-control. He knows that we need these elements in our life. Sometimes we think that we will be much more free if we follow all of life's potential opportunities than if we were limiting so that we could be more active in our, even our own church. You know, if you're truly born again, you're not really going to enjoy being away from where God's people gather. You're going to want to regroup. You're going to want to return. And you know what? Like the young Jesus who was found by his parents in the temple, and they were asking him where he had been, Jesus looked at his parents and said, why are you looking for me? Don't you know that i got to be in my father's house? He knew where he ought to have been. And where he was in the father's house, he was completely free. You see, there's two sowers, but there is also two plants in the ground. And these show us of how spiritual deception can occur. Verse 25, uh, we see the, the, the parable details there. Uh, if you look at your Bibles and you see verse 25, it says, But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. Now, if you go down to verse 38, Jesus gives us the interpretation, and he says, the, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now, in the parable of the sower that we looked at a few weeks ago, you remember the three different kinds of soils. There was, uh, there was hard soil, rocky soil, there was thorny soil. The problem was not with the seed in that parable. It was the problem was with the soils. Now, in this parable, the problem is the seed. And so we have to make sure we distinguish the details carefully, not blend the two ideas together. But there is a sense in which now we're looking at the good soil and seeing seeds planted on that. And we're seeing how in this situation, it's not the problem of the seed, it's the problem, excuse me, not the problem of the soil, it's a problem of what seed is being sowed. Now this parable of the weeds, I call it the parable of the weeds, but maybe you've heard it called something else. Maybe you've heard it called uh, the wheat and the tares. Does anyone know what a tear is? Okay, I didn't think so. A tear is an older term for a weed called a darnel. A darnel. Uh, the darnel usually grows in the same production zone as wheat, and it looks a lot like wheat in the early stages of its growth. Um, there's such similarity in it that sometimes it's called false wheat. 
And it bears such a close resemblance that until the ear, that is the, the fruit, comes into place, it's usually indistinguishable. And at wheat harvest, uh, the wheat will turn brown, whereas the darnel usually turns black, turns black. Now, the darnel is toxic, and so it becomes very problematic to have toxic wheat or toxic seeds in your grain that you're trying to sell, and you don't want to harm your customers. Your reputation will go down the drain pretty quick. But notice that this enemy, he comes sowing seeds among the wheat in secret, and then he goes away. And notice that this planting occurs not like in a separate field. It's not like the wheat were over here, and then very clearly over here was the darnel. But Jesus says it was sown right in the middle of the wheat. It may surprise you that spiritual conflict and deception occurs inside the church. But I think if you think about it, that will probably make some sense. Remember that Satan hates the church. Satan is always on watch to do mischief in the church. In the very first church, Adam and Eve were the very first church. And after Adam and Eve sinned, their children and offspring manifested seeds that were not righteous. There was sin inside their family. Satan got a hold of Cain's heart, and he sowed seeds of discord and division that led to murder. Well, they had the same biological parents, but they had different spiritual fathers. And I think this is something that we ought to ask ourselves. If God is a God of love, why is there so much, why is there even any evil in the world? And more specifically, if, if God is a builder of this church and the world, then why, why are there so many evil people in the church? And then I think we can ask a further question. Why is there so much evil in me? Satan's tactics have not changed, and he mingles wicked people with believers. Believers can have residual wickedness still living within them. This is not an accident. It's not a natural occurrence. It's throughout the biblical storyline. You see God's people many times turning away from him. Well, I'm going to leave that question unanswered for a moment. But we're going to move to see another element. That there is a single harvest at the end of the age, which describes a physical revelation. Up to this point, it's secret. We don't know who is, who is truly a part of the family and who is not. And so everything has been building up to this point when the servants come to the master and they ask, what should we do? We see, these, we see the, the elements starting to show themselves to be darnel and tares and, and, and weeds. What should we do? Should we go in and pluck up these weeds? And the answer that is given in verse 29 is, no, don't do that. Don't go in and disturb the, the ground. 
lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Why would this be? Because as Jesus is describing this, he's using it as a metaphor that there is going to come a harvest at the end of the age and reapers will go in and will be able to distinguish clearly between true and false wheat. And to this point in Jesus' parable, the true Christian is really hard to identify. It's not impossible. By their fruit, they will know them. But one day there will be a physical revelation of who is in and who is out, and it will be made known. Once that harvest has begun, there will be no turning back. Now, sometimes people will misread this parable and think that since the church will always have wicked people and wicked men, wicked women, that there's really no point in doing the hard tasks of things like church discipline or pruning and, you know, you might uproot the, the true, true wheat. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually trying to encourage his disciples and us not to lose hope. Because even though Satan is at work and there will be wicked people among us and there will be divisions that come, this is the way it's going to be until Christ comes and the final harvest occurs. And once that final harvest starts to take place, there will be no turning back. There will be no opportunities for calling upon the name of the Lord. And in this era, there are times when Christians need to be awakened and realize that they are on the brink of potentially getting harvested, but not to go to heaven, but harvested towards hell. And so there are possibilities that some people would think themselves to be Christians when they truly are not. And to hear a topic like this is actually a mercy of God to give people pause to have an opportunity to examine themselves. Am I truly of the Father's wheat? Am I tr a true Christian or am I a tr Christian in name only? We also ought to, as Christians, consider the sobriety that this would bring. And we ought to take care of one another. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 says this, that we ought to take care of one another, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, as we take responsibility for one another, we do this as an act of kindness. Jesus doesn't want us to lose heart, and he doesn't want us to stand on the sidelines saying, well, I'm not going to join this church because I'm looking for the perfect church. Jesus says clearly in this parable, there is not going to be a perfect church. And so it's important for us to take with seriousness what Jesus says, either on the one hand, not to get discouraged by things that happen in church, but on the other hand, do not avoid the church. These are important for our lives. And so there is that third element that there is a harvest that's once appointed, and it will physically reveal 
who is who in God's kingdom. And then the last element here that I want us to, to consider this morning is that there are two results from the harvest. And I've described these as physical reward. If you understand the biblical narrative, there is creation, there is fall, there's opportunity for salvation, and then there is judgment coming at the end of the age. Here, Jesus is talking about the coming of judgment. God has been incredibly patient with evil, but he will not be lax with evil. He will one day bring judgment, and there will be a fiery furnace that will be there at the end. Notice that the, at the end here in verse 40, let's read those verses again. In verse 40, it says, Jesus interprets, interprets and says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when the righteous, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What kinds of people will be plucked out of the church or out of this world? Here, Jesus describes these two as, one, those who are all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, those who cause sin are sometimes referred to as scandals. All causes of sin, someone, you know, someone, someone who is supposed to be living in a certain way, leading others causes others to sin because they themselves are hiding their own sin. It's a scandal. There's, there's people that, on the one hand, also trip other people up, and they drive people away from the faith. They offend and they hurt people who are weak. They're also lawbreakers. In other words, those who live a lawless life. They live lawless and they teach others to live in such a way that doesn't honor God at all. And it's very dangerous. And Jesus is issuing a warning to say, if you find within your soul a tendency to excuse the holiness of God and say, oh, it's okay, you don't really understand the grace of the gospel. God's grace is there for sinners who humble themselves and turn from their sins but they have also been given a calling to, to walk with Christ and become more like him over time. There is a sense in which we invite everyone to come as they are, but not to stay as they are. They are to come as they are and embrace the truth of the gospel, but then change as the Holy Spirit enlightens their hearts to know that they need to make those changes in their hearts and lives. It is dangerous to dismiss the need for change. In fact, we ought to hold tightly to the grace of Jesus Christ, and we also need to fight tooth and nail against lawless, immoral living, undisciplined living. Why? Because these kinds of ways of living will experience the full wrath of God. 
And as this parable tells us, there will be many in those days who will fall into the fiery furnace in which there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. On the other hand, there is another kind of physical reward that occurs. In this text, Jesus talks about the righteous. It's not righteous because of what they have done, but it is righteousness that has been given to them by faith alone. These folks will shine like the sun in the kingdom of heaven. Those who have decided to take the narrow road in life will experience the joys of heaven. It may be uncomfortable in this life because they're making decisions by faith to follow Jesus, and it cuts them off, it limits their freedom, but yet they, in the end, will gain the greatest freedom of eternal life. It's not always enjoyable to be kept up in the coop, but in the coop there is life. Truth is hidden in plain sight if we have ears to hear. Jesus says in verse 43, Verse 43 says, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Truth hidden in plain sight. There is a truth that is hidden in plain sight here in this text too. If it's difficult for you to understand the biblical narrative and the details of the scriptures, you're not without resources. There is a truth here that's hidden in plain sight, and that's found in verse 36. It says, And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us this parable that we just heard. The truth that's hidden in plain sight is that we can be a part of the crowd that has enjoyed such a nice event on Saturday evening, and then we have the opportunity to come into a house and hear the truths of God's Word. We have the opportunity to hear from the Scriptures about what life is all about. The disciples had the greatest privilege of all to hear from the mouth of Jesus. Now, Jesus has not left us without resources. Jesus has given us pastors and teachers for the building of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. When Jesus comes, we have not been left without the resources that we need to understand our way in this world. And so, as we look at this text, may we realize the benefit that we have Knowing the biblical narrative is important for us, but being taught by Jesus is infinitely greater. And I would encourage us all to be faithful as we serve Jesus in anticipation of Him and the harvest that will come. Lord, would you make us faithful? Uh, we, we, We are often unfaithful, but we know that He is faithful still. And that gives us the courage to keep coming back to him and to be growing uh, in time as he nurtures us with the word, with his people, and with the providences that we face and experience in this world. We're going to pray now and uh, 
transition to the next part of our service, which will be communion. But let's pray.